Hello, my name's James Pikeway, and this is Doc Talk with Dr. Jenna Burton on Potaholics. She is wide awake, drinking Diet Pepsi, and we... <laughs> And we've got lots to talk about. We have lots to talk about. In fact, this is part two of Junk Down Under, the men's version. (laughs) I I like that one. There was so much we just didn't get onto last time. And it was awkward because Andrew was clearly uncomfortable about talking about male genitalia. And my mum was there. Yeah. and and I She wasn't uncomfortable at all. She was ready to jump in. I thought that was. And by the way, that is is, uh, Mrs. Sue Burton. A.K.A. Susie Floozy, A.K.A. Mummy Burton. So, Mummy Sue, Mummy Sue. That's oh, Mummy Sue, Mummy Sue. Yes, okay. Yeah. So, lots of my friends, uh, they actually text my mum, and sometimes I don't even know about it, and I just feel like I'm out the loop because, uh, and they're like, "Oh yeah, yeah." So, I was just talking to Mummy Sue the other day. I was like, "Oh really?" (laughs) (laughs) Is she now? Is your mum back now? Because she was here, obviously, last week. She's gone back to the UK. Did so she have she, to go into quarantine when she went back for two weeks? Yes. But yes, yes, she had to go into quarantine for two weeks um, mm. in the UK at the moment, unless you're one of 70 countries, of which Dubai sadly isn't yet. Mm. You have to self-isolate two weeks. I think a lot of it is kind of, it's like a, a depend, like a, an independent isolation where yeah. people have to go and put them in themselves. So it does rely on people's self-discipline, I suppose. Yeah. Well, we wanted to pick up, as you said, so we had Andrew first, who was a little uncomfortable. Your mother came on board, and she. then we had a conversation about many, many, many of, of the things that, that she's had that precipitates from spina bifida and onwards. It went, wow, what a conversation. But in the whole thing, we still did get part one of talking. We, we were talking, we really talked about vasectomies pretty, pretty, pretty well last, last time around. And Andrew, Andrew went right through it. He went with it. I thought that was pretty cool. Yeah, he did. I mean, we kind of, we took him by surprise on the conversation, but yeah. you know, he, he mucked in. You were good enough to give us your personal stories, which I thought was quite interesting, James. <laughs> well, you got to uh, do what you got to do for the podcast, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, then again, mum mom really shared. So I think... I think we've all sold our stories to the podcast. Yeah. But I think what's nice is that when you do start talking about anything, whether it's mental health issues, whether it's things that you consider embarrassing to do with bowel, bowel habits or, as you say, like vasectomies and things to do with your manhood, it's amazing how many other people have got a story that's quite similar. Yeah. And, you know, I sometimes I sit with my grandma, um, who you know is she, she's 93, she's elderly, and she's got a fighting spirit. And... What I find interesting is years ago, you couldn't even talk about anything. So if I was unwell, say I had the runs, yeah. I couldn't tell my husband that. I wouldn't tell him. And it was a big no-no to even say that you were unwell to friends and family. And people would often sort of gossip about you as, mm. oh, here, such and such isn't well. And now we are so much more open. And I think that's for the better. I, I agree with you on that. I think that that the opportunity to have those conversations with people and be upfront about things, and then you realize that other people have gone through the same things, so you're you know you're processing it. I think that's really important, and I and I, that's what I think this podcast works really well for. Caring is sharing, James. There we go. And it's it's true because if you keep it to yourself, you can escalate it in your mind, and yeah. you make it into something so much bigger than it really is. Yeah, I, absolutely. So if people want to catch up on what we talked about last podcast, you're, you're, you're going to get a nice conversation that went all over the place. But really, we, we had a great conversation about, you know, men getting vasectomies. And, you know, it's, it's, it's such an easy procedure and it can, it can be reversed and it might be a route that some want to take. Different religions have different takes on that. Different parts of the world have different takes on that so it's really a personal thing that you need to consider if that's the route you want to go but it can be uh, a very viable form of birth control so james as you're talking and as i'm thinking okay let's carry on the conversation talking about male genitalia and the things that can occur i'm looking at your shirt and you're wearing big bird and elmo and there's something that just feels wrong about the whole setup <laughs> how can we have a conversation about 
male genitalia when you're wearing effectively children's garments. Yeah, it's it's, it's a good one because you know you you could probably if you could probably go to Sesame Street and you could sit there and Big Bird could probably have a conversation with you and you know Cookie Monster and Oscar the Grouch they could probably walk you through oh, pretty that, much. Is that Cookie Monster? I thought it was Elmo. No, that's Cookie Monster. Oh right, okay, yeah, great. I mean, it's he's I mean, holding it's cookies actually. If I if I get close, thing. yeah. Well, yeah like, I think the the reason we initially got talking about male genitalia in the first instance is one, it's just not really spoken about. Even guys don't speak about this. You don't. No, no. But like, what do you guys do? You guys not like have a chat? Like, is this normal? Is that normal? No. Not even when you're teenagers. No. Especially not when you're but, teenagers. Well, for me, it's interesting because I've now had two little boys and it's, there's a whole world out there that I didn't know about. I know about the medical issues, but there are things that are coming up that maybe I've not been in touch with either. And uh, one of the big things is uh, one of our little boys, he's had a recurrent phalantitis. So he gets an infection. Okay, uh, so hold on. You're gonna back, let's back up a bit because we're, let's, let's back up a little second because phalantitis... Yeah, balantitis. So, so give us the run through of what actually that means. So, balantitis is an infection, and it usually occurs in little boys that still have their foreskin. And effectively, when they're urinating or from bath time or whatever, they can get a collection of debris mm. in like underneath the foreskin, which effectively gives them an infection. So, the the, the bacteria harbors there, and, and it becomes it becomes like a nasty infection. It can be painful urinating or just generally painful it can become red and swollen and what happened is one day I took took my little boy's nappy off and I nearly died because I just saw this big red thing like my goodness what's yeah. what, you know what's going on and it, it after you sort of stop and think to yourself okay he's probably got a balantitis he'll need antibiotics and then the question then came in is is you know if, if it's recurrent do we start thinking about circumcision which is then how we started you know you and I were we're having a brief chat about it is, is is that suitable and do people should we do it for a medical reason or do we just leave it for ethical or cultural reasons and you know there's just there's a lot you can do down there and, yeah. and as parents you have a lot of power over making quite large decisions for your children so when when we talk about the balantitis i want to go back to that and and you notice yeah. this was was your little boy having issues with the foreskin retracting does it not retract enough to clean Yes. So usually when uh, little boys are born, their foreskin doesn't actually tend to retract. Oh, okay. And then some boys, it loosens off very quickly. And for others, it can actually take up to the age of 15 to completely 15. loosen old. and be able to retract. Yeah. So, and I think there's a, a misconception that you should try and pull it back and to try and tease it back. But, but, you know, that can actually cause injury and cause further infection. So it's actually better to just let it naturally, mm. naturally come away. And there are... There are non-invasive methods like you can apply a steroid cream prescribed by your doctor for about six to eight weeks that can help to try and encourage it. But sometimes after you've stopped using it, it can go back again. And for those little boys that it doesn't come back as easily, you can get these problems if it's not cleaned properly or if they're in nappies for a prolonged amount of time or or even things like you use a different type of bubble bath and the bath can cause like an irritation oh, man. and the irritation can lead to infection. And then the, then the boy doesn't want to have a bath and the last thing you want is some boy that grows up not wanting to, to have showers and baths. <laughs> as far as I'm aware, I don't think any young boys want to get clean um, from experience. I, I, we had a situation where our young child loved to have baths. In fact, baths and showers, he was like a three-time-a-dayer and then moved away and it was kind of like... You had a shower leak recently, dude? It's like, it's like what happened? Well, ours went, have gone through stages. So they go a few months where they were terrified of the bath. Currently, they're terrified of the shower. Okay. And other times, they love the bath and don't want to get out. But trying to wash their hair, I have oh. to literally manhandle them to scrub their hair and shove the water over. And I always feel really guilty. And I think the next door neighbor's probably think I'm torturing my child. All I'm trying to do is get them clean. I saw something for you at Daiso. Do you ever go into the I Daiso? I saw it. I saw it, James. You need that for your boys. You put that little shower visor on and then the hair is up top. You wash it and, and nothing gets in their face. Actually, it's not a bad idea. I think they might the like right it. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah, but we've got, we've got two little boys, both, you know, twins. Yeah. Uh, however, genetically very different. And one of them's got off scot-free, not got the problem. The other one's got this phalantitis recurrent. 
And we have debated, should we get him circumcised? In fact, two weeks ago, he was scheduled for, not even two weeks ago, last Tuesday, he was mm. down to have the surgery. And then last minute, we backed out. And we felt, we felt we're just not ready to do it yet. Yeah. If it was in the UK or in a non-private healthcare system, we'd be waiting quite a number of years. And you run the risk of, do you leave it longer and, and hope it gets better? But if you leave it longer, the more chance that it's going to be more painful when you do decide to do it. Right. It's, it's, a, real, it's a real challenge, isn't it? Like, what do you do? And the other side of with balantitis is it, he could grow out of this, right? Yes, yeah, that tends to be most common situations that as they as they get older, they, they, they do, they grow out of it. And that's because it naturally retracts as, as time goes on. So how long? And hence why we how, decided to not risk a general anesthetic. How long do you think you have to wait? Well, this is the thing is it's how long is a piece of string. Oh, it naturally man. should retract by the age of 10 to 15. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of do you decide to intervene in the meantime, thinking that maybe it might not. And I think we had a very brief conversation about it last week, and we talked about in different countries they have different ideas about it. So, for instance, I read some literature in Australia, and the whole feel and consensus of the literature was leave your children alone Mm. unless there is a real, like, dire reason don't circumcise your children until they're old enough to make the decision. And yet if you look at literature from America, they're very much more pro-circumcision. It's cleaner. Mm. You're less likely to get penile cancer, less likely to get urine tract infections as young children, less likely to get valentitis. So why would would you not? And I found it really interesting that two big countries, two excellent public health systems have very different views on quite a topical debate because, I mean, one in two of us is, is male, yeah. I say us, you. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so, you know, it, you would have thought there'd be a, a greater consensus internationally. Yeah. The, the whole side when, you, you know, balantitis is one thing, but the whole side with urinary tract infections with, with guys becomes that whole other thing. And that's, that's one of the routes that we went down. One of, our, one of my boys had urinary tract infections. The other one never did. And it was, it was a big concern because, you know, it was painful. There was all sorts of stuff going on and he was just a young boy and it was, it was crazy. And it, it came down to the same issues. Urine tract infections really aren't very nice. And no. if you get it as a female, it's not nice, but as a male, it's worse. And that tends to be because the urethra of a male is so much longer than a female, that mm. it's, it's kind of like a greater infection. So, for instance, if I was to treat a, a female with a urine tract infection, I'd give them three days antibiotics. They'd have to have a few recurrent urine tract infections before I started doing ultrasound scans of the kidneys and the ureters uh, and the bladder. Whereas for a male, if they were to get a urine tract infection, it's five days antibiotics. And I would start to consider ultrasound almost immediately because yeah. you think, well, why are they getting a urine tract infection? It's really not very nice, not comfortable and sometimes the symptoms aren't what people imagine. They think that they would. It would be very obvious that their bladder is sore because it's a urine tract infection. You'd think where the urine is. But sometimes you get dribbling. Sometimes you get a frequent, like you need to go to the toilet more often. Sometimes you get pain when you go to the toilet. But sometimes, especially the younger you are, you can get none of those symptoms and you just get a child that's got a stomach ache and nausea or vomiting. And so it can be quite difficult to distinguish is this a tummy problem or is it actually a urine tract infection? And in the UK, we tend to test most unwell children for their urine. And really? that is not easy the younger they are to so, try and get a urine sample. Oh, <laughs> it's <man>. non-contaminated. <laughs> well, that's it. And that's the other side when we talk about doing these tests. You know, adults are one thing. But as you said, with the children getting a non-contaminated sample, it's so easily to, it's so easy to contaminate samples. I, I used to look at parents, I'd give them a test tube, or not a test tube, but like a larger sample yeah. pot. I'd say, right, you need to get a clean catch. And they'd look at me like, what, what, what do you mean? And I'd almost be smiling inside thinking, good luck, good luck. <laughs> Here's your sample pot. You've got to watch now for the next few hours until your child urinates and catch it in a, in a clean sample into the pot. And it's so hard and they'd yeah. be waiting for ages and notoriously... The child would go to the toilet the one minute they turned around to wash the hands or something. Yeah. Uh, and I used to find it really funny until it happened to me and we had to do the same thing. Yeah. In Australia, we used to give them a bag that we'd put around their, 
basically around the urethra. We'd, we'd, we'd put the bag around uh-huh. and we'd take the sample. But now that's been decided that that is a contaminated sample and it's not sterile. Really? So we tend to try and get the clean catch, which is just a nightmare. Yeah. Well, there you go. You see. <laughs> this is it. The younger you are, the... It's too, it's twofold. The younger you are, the more difficult it is to locate your symptoms because of non-verbalization. And also your nerves aren't quite as mature, so you find it more difficult to know where pain is coming from the younger you are. Mm. So that's why a stomachache in a child can be a whole plethora of things. Yeah, it's horrible. And you're, you're, just, you're just slowly getting through all of those, those, uh, those stages that's just all coming on to you right now. You're, yeah, yeah. I, I, all those people, those poor people that in, inside I had a little smile of good luck. Yeah, they're, they're all getting their payback now because we have to go through it and we're doing it. And it's, you know, and I know the like 3 a.m. in the morning, any visits because you're, you know, you're worried about something or you know you need antibiotics, yep. you know that you need them straight away and you can't really wait till morning. So, yes, I, I, I totally understand. Yeah, I, I, I've got a great story of a, uh, it's not medical related, it's just it's just uh, working in the field with kids and people who don't have kids. And we had a yeah. wonderful teacher with one of my boys, uh, you know, reception, it must have been reception. And he was, he's a bit of a fidgeter. He, he's always moving, you know, and he's, he's always got a shake on and he's, and this teacher used to, every day we'd go and pick up our boy and every day I'd sit down with, with this teacher and she was a lovely lady and she would say, you know, it wasn't such a good day and this and that. And he, you know, he couldn't get him to sit for the 35 minutes on the carpet. And it's like, yeah. And then about 15 years later, we meet her in the grocery store with her two kids who are pulling cans off the shelf. And we say, oh, hello. And she looks at me and she, first thing she says is, because she obviously remembered who we were and, you know, how could you forget my boys? I mean, they, it was like always just going like this, right? And she says, you must have thought I was a real hag. And we kind of went, yeah, pretty much. <laughs> she goes, look at what I've got. <laughs> so now she's suddenly totally got it. That you know what? How do you understand before you have them? You don't. Yeah, yeah. No, it's. I, I used to be that terrible friend that would say to. I've got a really great friend Jenny, and she had a little girl before all of us. And I'd be like, "Should we go out tonight?" And she'd say, oh, "I can't. I've got my daughter." And I'd be like, "Well, you're not got a babysitter." And and you just you just don't get it. You don't yeah. get it. Uh, and now I feel so embarrassed that I would say that, but you just you just don't understand until you have your own children. Yeah. For sure. Well, going back to the, the the nail thing, I have got a question to ask James, but it's 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 quite invasive. So <laughs> okay, go for uh, it. Let's see. You can always edit it out at <laughs> the podcast. Uh, I, I don't get. I have to say, we decided not to go ahead with the circumcision because uh, our, our little man. Um, we decided we just didn't want to put him through a general anesthetic. Yeah. But what is the hassle? What is, why would anyone want to keep a foreskin? Because there's so many problems that can happen. I was telling you, you've got penile cancer is more likely, although it's not a very likely. Yeah. Uh, I, when you put, you put when that one in there and I wondered about penile cancer. Yeah. I, I was, I was reading about paraphimosis as well. I wanted you to talk a little bit more about that and penile cancer. Two things that I got to say, as I was reading through these conditions, uh, I, I kind of went, huh, things I never thought of. I love the fact that you avoided the question, but that's fine. So <laughs> I don't know. I haven't gotten there. So I, I mean, cause we're in the same boat. We, we did, we didn't circumcise our boys and, but I was, and so that was that was kind of a weird thing, right? And I, I, I don't know why we didn't. I mean, it just didn't it's, seem to be something that we needed to do. And if you do it from birth, it's so much easier for them anyway. Yeah. And there is an argument to say, just do it. But then when you read the literature in Australia, it says, don't make that decision. How can you make that decision for your children? Yeah. Which I understand. But then you think, you know, I bet it didn't psychologically scar you because you'd never have known what it was like with one. No, no. You know, the other side was, I I remember when we were at that phase with our um, pediatrician, because it would have been very early when he came and and saw the boys. And I I suspect that it wasn't something that that he thought was necessary at that point. And, you know, Dr. Legault, I I guess he just didn't think it needed to be done. And and he wasn't very, he wasn't a, a super pusher of antibiotics either. So, you know, he was, he's very, you know, sorry, very refined. Hey, let's wait this out. Let's see what's going on. So 
I, I guess it just didn't sort of fit into the, the situation at the time. But we didn't give it yeah. much thought, really. And the thing is, is as I mentioned, there are a few other things that can occur. And it occurs usually more in earlier life than later life. Because as you get older, you, you learn how to look after yourself a bit better, yeah. don't you? And one of the things is a phimosis, which is quite closely linked with phalantitis, which is where you have an exceptionally small opening of your penis. So it can be very difficult to get all your urine out. It can either be uncomfortable or it can collect urine in, inside. the. Um, it, basically, you can't... You can't get rid of all your urine and therefore more likely to get urine tract infections, more likely to collect around the edge yeah. of the foreskin, therefore leads to infection. So that, that kind of comes with the fact that the foreskin doesn't retract properly. But you can also get a pathological phimosis, which is where you've had an infection like a balantitis and you get scar tissue, and that does need to have effectively it needs like surgical intervention really because it'd be very difficult to the, the scarring isn't going to go anywhere scarring mm. doesn't tend to it scars for a reason and when things scar it's a very fibrous tissue which means it, it's not moldable it doesn't tend to come back it, it's it's kind of like it makes almost like, it's like a cement in the skin effectively yikes um and the other one one of my favorite conditions is something called a paraphimosis and it's my favorite because when you're in medical school and you're learning how to do procedures like catheterization. At the end, it's always in capital letters at the bottom <laughs> of your procedure manual is, don't forget to retra- like retract, put the foreskin back. So you retract the foreskin at the beginning. And in the end, don't forget to put the foreskin back. Because if I retract the foreskin or just put a catheter in, and then I forget to put it back again, what can happen is the end of the penis blows up and blows up and blows up to the point that you can no longer put the foreskin oh, no. back. and Ever? You can... <laughs> Pardon? Ever? Like, it, that, that's it? It's a done deal? But, but it, it, it can actually cause necrosis, which is death of the tissue towards the end of the of the penis. And I remember we'd be told it all the time, and you'd, you'd go, oh, it'd be one of those things, oh, my God, did I put it back? And quickly run back to the patient, make sure you put it back. And then I worked in an oncology hospital, and one of the nurses forgot to put the foreskin back. And I, in my life, I have never seen a man in more pain. And we were sat, we had ice cubes on him. We had to sit squeezing the end of the penis for a while to try and push out the blood so that we could try and get oh, the foreskin back. And ultimately we couldn't. And he had to go, he had to be uh, transferred to the main hospital and had to have surgery. So it has to be like slit the end of the, uh, of the foreskin and, and basically put it back. Wow. So there's all these other things that occur. But honestly, hand on my heart, I've been through labor. That looked like the most painful thing I've ever seen. You know, when I looked at our notes and as we sit here and talk, I'm going, why wouldn't you just get this procedure done? Even I'm thinking, I'm just thinking I maybe have nine of my little boys, but I, I, in my heart, I just can't put a child to a general anesthetic unless I am 110% yeah. sure it's fine. And that doesn't mean that a general anesthetic is anything to be concerned about. It's just that everything in life comes with a small risk. And yeah. I'm probably, I probably have quite high health anxiety given everything I've seen. So I may be a little bit more, I may be a bit over the top, to be honest about it. But you're right, it, it probably does make sense to get it done at birth. The, the other one that, that comes up here is, of course, there, there's always issues with STIs if someone is you know, not practicing safely, which becomes an issue. But is there, ultimately, are there, is there a greater chance of STIs than if you're circumcised? I'm actually not aware of the statistics on that. Yes, there is actually. You just reminded me. There is. I don't know statistics, James, but mm. there is a slightly higher chance. However... The general standpoint on it is, is that by being circumcised, it doesn't protect you enough to not uh, use other forms of protection. Okay. So if you're someone that's going to mess about, and I've also you know, been into gum clinics many times, not as a patient, but as a, not there's anything wrong with that. It's good for everyone to go and get checked out regularly. Which kind of but, clinics? What did you call that clinic? Gum clinic, G-U-N, genital urinary medicine. Is there such a thing? I, ne- I never heard of that. Okay. So I don't know how it works in Canada, and I certainly don't know how it works in Dubai because uh, it's not a branch that I work in. However, we used to have these set; they were separate clinics away from family practice, away from the main hospital, and the files were completely confidential. Mm. And as a woman, 
if you ever wanted to have a lack of trust in your husband, you just need to go and spend the day in the gum clinics because you'd see, well, you'd hear a lot of stories and you'd, you'd have men. And I have to say it was, it was normally men. I know that it, that's not a fair representation of what occurs generally. There's lots of men and women that cheat, but my experience was there was lots of men there and they would be trying to give their wives antibiotics on the sly, asking for dissolvable tablets that they could put into their drinks so that their wives wouldn't know that they had got an infection and they were from somebody else from extramarital affairs oh, and then no. trying to like get, give, give the medication to their wife. So because the, the, the chances are that the infection yeah. that they have been spread. That's completely unethical. These guys are, these guys are dogs. <laughs> Terrible. <laughs> there, there, there was some, I have to say it was a really interesting branch of medicine. I, I, have, I did enjoy it. And some of the stories that you would hear, some of the things that you would see, Generally, anything to do with men's and women's bits that have come into A&E as well, they tend to be quite fascinating stories. There was a um, uh, there was a whole thing at one point during the corona lockdown in some part of British Columbia in Canada where there were they were talking about some of the A&E cases with men coming in who have had some issues. And it, they, they outlined about eight of them. And it was just like, what? I'm, I'm reading this going, how? And the, the men were actually, you know, they were probably like 50 plus were the age of these guys. And, you know, from animal bites to other things, it was like, how? What were you doing? It's like, there's, a, there's a bit of a reoccurring one. And that is a hoover on the end of, of oh, men's no. genitalia. And, and often men do like, they like to put their bits and pieces what, what is it you said you like to call junk. it? I said a pink panther. Call it the junk. You call it your junk. Ju- your junk. Yeah. If a man puts the junk in a very, very small space, what they don't realize is a large part of the arterial supply, so the, the blood going through the penis, is actually in deep inside, not all of it, but yeah. a large part. And a large part of the venous supply, so coming away from the penis on the outside. Ah. So if you include the outside of the penis... Blood can still come in, but it can't escape as readily. And therefore, it continues again, a bit like the paraphimosis we talked about, to kind of engorge and engorge and then get stuck. And it's a real common thing that you see in an emergency department. And men get, you know, obviously get really embarrassed coming in with something like that. However, you have to appreciate we've seen it so many times. It's not really... And it's, it's human nature, I suppose. I don't know. I'm thinking the guy walking in with the Dyson in hand and he's saying, I got a problem. I'm thinking, you know. It's not normally a Dyson. It's normally a Henry just because of the shape of the nozzle, James. <laughs> I don't even know what a Henry is. I gotta, now i got to look that up. Okay. Yeah, Google that. Or a Betty. Uh, is it actually called, is it a, a, a legitimate Hoover or is it is it the brand name Hoover or is it just a vacuum cleaner? Henry Hoover's an legitimate Hoover. And in the UK and all the schools and all the office blocks, they all have one. And they're terrible Hoovers. They're terrible. <laughs> and they're red and they've got a little face on. Oh, okay. And, yeah, I've, and seen, yeah. I've seen those. Yeah, I've seen that, Henry. Yeah. yeah. And then if you want to, you can get the pink version, which is the Betty. And sometimes they even have one called James as well. And they're just they're would- terrible Terrible Hoovers that everyone has. <laughs> Why would they name a Hoover after your husband and myself? That just seems to be a little <laughs> off. <laughs> I think I think they may be the cheap duplicates, actually. Oh, uh, okay. <laughs> but no, the real ones are the, the Henry. But you'd see a Henry a lot just because of the shape of the nozzle. Mm. So, I mean, they're, 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 again, it's, you know, what a, what a crazy area of medicine when we start talking about genitals and, and men and stuff. I think I think there is an important take-home message, actually, and I think that what we've got to remember is, is that one, a lot of women are single parents looking, and it'll be the same the other way around, looking after young boys, and often they're not educated, mm. really. I mean, I, I had as a parent, I had zero education into the fact that I have two children with a complete different anatomy system to one that I have, and I think sometimes it might. It, be a good idea when you're going to antenatal classes they teach you so much about the birth process itself and very little about actually having children and also becoming acquainted with a completely different sex to one that is that is yours mm. and so there's there's a note to say about educating and then also educating little boys as well 
that they have this piece of anatomy that one needs to be taken care of and two they've got to be careful where they put that thing whether we're talking about into inappropriate places where it can get stuck about making sure that they put their foreskin back but also about when they get older when it comes to like safe sex practices because stis can get nasty mm. you know we didn't we not even touched on things like syphilis which can get really nasty and is life-threatening if, if um if is able to get to the third stage of syphilis and I think that we all maybe need to talk about it a bit more and have a bit more education out there. Mm. It's not non, what is it, non-PC. It, yeah. it should be. Why is it not PC? It's an anatomy that 50% of the population have. Yeah, no, you're, you're right. And that's, that's a real big challenge. And, you know, you know, even in families where you've got, a, you know, the mom and dad and, there's always the oper- there's always the chance that mom's going to be away and if you've got daughters and do the guys have enough information about what they need to know and if women don't men don't either i mean the last thing you want to be doing is talking about all that stuff and you've got a you know a pre prepubescent child uh, in your house and maybe her period starts and mom's away on the long weekend and it's like <gasps> got to have a conversation you know and it's like well boy and not just that, I mean, we've talked very much today about the anatomical differences, but sometimes there is also a psychological aspect to that. And for a girl, it's a really big thing when they start their period. And if their dad acts in a really uncomfortable, awkward mm. manner or says, you know, is very clumsy with their words, sometimes that can have, you know, rebound effects that they, they get uncomfortable about the fact that they're going through puberty. Yeah. And you don't know how that will affect them going forward because that is a kind of quite a monumental stage within their life. And I'm sure it's it's very similar for boys for different reasons. Yeah. And I just think that we it shouldn't be a big thing to talk about because these are things that everybody goes through. Yeah. Well, and I just remember going back, and this is just another one about the difference between little boys and little girls, especially when you're when you've got diapers and things, and you're doing the wipe cycle. I still remember conversation we had with the medicine medic the the doctors in in the air with the folks when when you were talking when we had that whole meeting meet up and we did that great show uh over at the airport and you had a great you had a great point about something that you constantly remind the medics about is if you've got a female patient make sure you wipe the right way because otherwise and and i and i I remember when you said that i was thinking huh and then when you explained, I went, makes sense. And how easy to forget, like as a guy, might not even think. Wipe, it's you know, wipe down, not up. I to remind those guys quite a lot because they were proper, like, like typical men. You know, people that do that job, they're often ex-military. I mean, I don't know how I ended up getting caught up in it, and I loved it. But it was a proper male-dominated industry. And there were all sorts of things from a working environment that were not comfortable for me that I would have to remind them. And also sometimes the way that they would treat the females – I would have to say, like, don't forget to do this. Have you thought about such and such? Don't forget to ask this question to them. But, I mean, I don't know how much this has affected Canada. And I'm very much for, this is a whole different topic and maybe for a different podcast. But there's a big thing now about not identifying genders. Right. So in the UK, especially in schools, they have boys and they have girls schools occasionally. And now then they're still not allowed to go and say, good morning, girls. They're not allowed to say, good morning, boys. And a lot of the closed stores don't have boys and girls sections, whereas they used to have boys aged 2 to 11. Mm-hmm. Now there are unigender areas. And I'm very for the fact that we should accept everybody however they are. But I think because we're not allowed, especially in the UK, to identify gender, that we are shying away from recognising the differences in boys and girls. And, and the majority of the time there are quite big differences in the as we've discussed some physiology aspects and also psychology aspects. Mm. And it's almost like we're not allowed to give the education anymore because yeah. it might seem as if we're forcing children down a particular path that they might not want to go in. And I, I don't think that's the case. I think it's just about giving the information and then letting the children do yeah. what they want with that information. I get, you know, it's interesting that you talk about not identifying. On this podcast alone, 6% of the listeners are unidentified. Oh really? Yeah. yeah. So, so a high number. Yeah. So I, I actually thought that was a really high number. So, uh, interesting. And I think I think it will also get higher. And I have no issue with my children deciding that they want to be a different gender or whatever. I don't care whatever they want to be as long as they're happy and they're safe. 
I think the only thing is, is that doesn't mean that we need to withhold information. We just need to be careful about how we give it. Mm, no, exactly. If you've, if you've got the equipment, you need to... Yes, you've gone. What? I've gone. Am I back? Hold on. Am I here? Can you hear me? No? Can you hear me now? No? Oh, there you go. Can you hear me? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, I think you somehow muted yourself. Oh, maybe. Oh, that's terrible. Uh, As I was saying, I think if people have the equipment, whether they're identifying or not identifying or they're planning to make a change, they need to know how to use it while they got it and and keep everything, you know, as it as it needs to be. I think that's really important. And I think the other thing is, is to it's very difficult because when you become a parent, there's obviously there's a whole host of information that suddenly you've got to learn. And I often I mean, even just from a very general point of view, not just talking about men's and women's different parts but there's there's a whole host of things that you're just not educated in when you become a parent I, I kind of feel like we should have parenting classes I, I I feel like we spend so much time on the internet and trying to figure stuff out and it'd be great if we could attend a class on this is what you do I mean I, I've never changed a nappy before my children's nappies I've never done never done any of that anything how can you be left alone with a child <laughs> when you haven't got a clue what you're doing yeah no that's that's a good question that and that's actually a really good point i often say this that it's it's the manual we need a little bit more education we need a little bit more training before we get going on all this and if you don't have family with kids and you don't have the opportunity and you know diaper rash and which creams work better and you know it's like <laughs> what do you do and learning on the fly is not necessarily the best thing. And a lot of people look to their parents, so grandparents, yeah. in order to give advice. And yet a lot of what they did is actually very outdated and yeah. science now suggests that they shouldn't do it. I mean, some of the things that my mom used to do to me, it's amazing I'm still alive, to be honest. <laughs> and, <laughs> and she used to get really annoyed at me, like at two months, why aren't you giving them solids? That's why they're not sleeping. Now it has been completely eradicated that you give solids up until the age of six. It should be milk alone. There's no reason why. Yeah. Even up until 12 months, they can't have milk alone. It's encouraged at six months that they start to introduce solids, but don't worry, milk is enough to satisfy the calorific needs. Yeah. But years ago, you were kind of like just out the womb and they're trying to put down Gravy. smashed carrots and potato <laughs> down your mouth. You know, it's, it's, it's totally different now. Now there's suggestion that that can cause choking, it, yeah. et cetera. So I think we need to be careful as well to who we look to for advice. Yeah. And a lot of people don't know, actually, that if you are really unsure about something, general practitioners, they don't know everything, but they are taught an awful lot about the very basic needs of, of babies and young children. And you can go to them for advice. I think a lot of people think, I don't want to burden the doctor or I've been a lot because I've had to do the newborn baby check. I've had to go for vaccinations and then such and such got a cold, but don't be afraid. They're very used to seeing young mums with the, with young babies there. It's kind of, it's a common time that you tend to visit your doctor frequently. I'm always uh, impressed with the number of young mums and babies who go in to see my osteo. And it's, it's an extraordinary lineup. And I just think, I actually asked him, I said, what are people coming to you for with a baby? And he said, oh, baby massage and this and that and the other thing. And it's just like, okay. A lot of baby massage is like a really big thing now. So yeah. It's huge. Yeah, I, I, it's it's nice. It's supposed to relax the baby, stop any anxiety, etc. And nice for the mum and a great bonding experience. But for me, I tried it once and I never went back. And that was just because I had two. <laughs> yeah, and I left it too late. And I'd be undressing one, and then they'd be crawling off down the room, and then the other one was with me, and he'd start crawling the other way. So I, I decided to call it quits very early yeah. on. But oh, you see, things like that pick up gusto because we've talked a lot about fashionable things and it's very fashionable, whereas attending an educational seminar is not quite about how to actually be a mum or a yeah. dad. Yeah. It is not quite as, as savvy. No, there's a lot of learning on the go. And I guess the more children you have, the better you get at it. <laughs> yeah, very true. Well, there's lots of people with like five, six children. My, my granddad, he, did I ever tell you this? He was one of 14. No, 14 children. Wow. That's a big family. How does the mom still walk after? I, and we, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> and, and actually, I, we were out the other day because we're both Privily members. And I, we were out somewhere and, and there was a, a young mom who had three more children and then the youngest one, and she's carrying the youngest one on her hip. And I was just watching her walk and I'm going, she must have real big back pain just by the way that she was moving and walking. I'm going, 
Yeah, those children are killing her. <laughs> well, like, we've actually got a similar problem because one of our boys, uh, in fact, both of them, they don't really like walking very much. So you end up putting them on your side and the way in which you hold yourself is just totally awful. You've got like a big S shape in your back. And often if you've got a young baby straight after birth, everything is still a bit overly supple because you've released prolactin and not prolactin, progesterone, which causes everything to relax. So yeah, people end up with really bad back pain. There's no doubt about it. Having children really messes up your body for a while. Yeah. It really does. And some of the damage is permanent. <laughs> well, and then there's just but the sleep really stuff, right? We did a podcast and we want on <laughs> things that they don't tell you after, after childbirth. <laughs> there's, hey, there's another thing I want to talk about real quickly before we have to end this show is um, you know diarrhea. And you, you can say, I don't even know where diarrhea fits to this, James. But it, because it comes from down below. Yes. The, yes, the exit is very close to everything else. <laughs> so have you had a recent bout of diarrhea? Because on, a, on our, we have yeah. a, a yeah. sheet that we, we tend to kind of like work from each week. I, I kind of seen diarrhea pop up a few times. Like it, it, you know, do you it's want to like, share? Like once a week, once a week. Easily, but it's so hot out, so I don't know if it's got something to do with heat or, and it's never on the same day. But at least once a week, there's something. And so now I'm trying to now I'm trying to track to see is it because I'm outside when it's warmer? Am I not eating enough, drinking enough liquids? I'm of I'm of the 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 impression recently because we're we're of course we're coming from Dubai, and we're in Dubai, and it is hitting with Humidex. Feels like you know yesterday was felt like 52. It, I mean, I was out jogging this morning with the dog at quarter to six. It was already pretty, you know, the sun wasn't up really yet, but it was still pretty warm with some humidity because it's that time of the year. And so I'm wondering if, it, what, what the heck's going on? But almost, you know, maybe once every week, once every week and a half, I find that I've got a little bit of a bout and I'm going, what's going on? And I can't be the only one. And I say that because I was at Boots Drugstore the other day. And what do they have at the counter? We know where they sell a hand sanitizer and they sell some funky mask and they sell this, that. They got a whole rack of Imodium. And I'm thinking, "Uh (laughs) uh-huh. It's it's like so many people are asking for it that they put it by the cash. You know, anything to do with, with the bowel is so complicated and there is so much research invested in trying to look into it because it's an area of medicine that I don't think we know enough about really. Mm. So there's so many different components that can that can have play a part into why somebody would have constipation or diarrhea. You know, often it's, it's down to the foods that you eat and more and more the foods that we eat contain chemicals or they contain sweeteners things that we're not meant to have in our body. And that, that plays a huge role in affecting our gut health. The other is, is actually the bowel itself. Do, do people have a healthy bowel? Have you got a healthy bacteria? And I know you take your kombucha regularly. Yep. So you, you know, you probably do and, and likely to take probiotics and likely to have loads of vegetables and fruits, which all help to maintain a really healthy gut. Is there a disease process? You know, people often have different types of colitis, so is that's basically the colon, but inflamed is colitis, so an inflammation. And that can be from like inflammatory bowel disease, like, like Crohn's, ulcerative colitis, where people tend to get these bouts that come for a few weeks and they disappear and they often need steroids at the time to try and reduce that inflammation. And for a majority of people, a large part, um, more common than it's not, it's idiopathic. So we never really find the cause. And there is more and more research to suggest that it's an emotional problem. So mm. they say big brain, little brain. When you're in the womb, the same material that makes your brain also makes your colon. And therefore, when people are anxious, when people are um, upset or depressed, it has such a massive impact on your bowels. It's like the common tale of the young child that gets diarrhea the morning before they've got to go in and see a scary teacher or the morning before they've got to give a presentation in school. And it's, it's because the, the gut responds to how you're feeling, even subconscious thoughts. Mm. So it's really, really difficult to decipher, like, is it X? Is it Y? You know, and it takes quite a lot of testing, really, to, to, to get to the, the real nitty gritty of what's going on. I could blame and, it on COVID. Then. Of, what was that? Sorry, James. I could blame it on COVID. Maybe it's just COVID stress. <laughs> I've not heard that saying yet. I really like it. <laughs> No, any, anything I can't, anything that's unaccountable, it's COVID. COVID did this to me, and it, it's not the virus; it's the mentality that's 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 emerged. 
Yeah, it could, it, mm-hmm. you certainly could be. You know, a lot of people are homesick in Dubai. That would yeah. be upsetting people. Worried about losing the jobs. Oh, my God. Oh, or they've lost the jobs. But the, the other one, just, just a quickly note, we're going to talk about diarrhea. The, the thing that I'd say is a really good message or a good thing to get out there to the world that will listen is lots and lots and lots of people suffer with uh, irritable bowel syndrome. And in the past, it was kind of dismissed as a real non-entity, something that people that had a bit of anxiety would suffer with. And, and I have to say, I, I never really liked the way in the medical industry they would talk about it because it was kind of like, oh, it's not really in anything. More and more people are suffering with irritable bowel syndrome. And that means people either have constipation-led or diarrhea-led uh, irritable bowel, but with no cause, no organic cause identified. Mm. So that means there's no tablets to take to make it better. And Australia are very, very ahead of nutrition and dietetics. They're really, really into their, their nutritional processes and, and um if you find a, if you talk to a dietitian or a nutritionist in Australia, they're really, really highly educated. And years, years before the rest of the world, they identified a diet called the FODMAPS diet, and it basically eliminated all sweetness. So it would be like fructose, etc. And you'd say about sixty percent with irritable bowel syndrome actually do really well off that diet. And it's about how a lot of the chemicals to sweeten foods, it can be in anything, even in certain breads now. Wow. You find that there's these chemicals that people can't break down, and that's what leads to the um, irritable bowel. Not not everybody, but a really good portion. So if you are someone that's suffering with that, it's worth just go and check out online, F-O-D-M-A-P-S, FODMAPS diet. It's worth just check it out because you might find it changes your life. All right. You know what? Maybe I need to also go for a checkup. <laughs> You should do things if you're having diarrhea once a week. <laughs> Go and get checked out. <laughs> and don't forget, over the age of 50, you should be having a stool sample once a year to check for any blood in your stool, any very small amounts that you can't see. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you, you know, it's, and I know I should do this. And, and you know the worst thing, because I know I need to do this. And if you said, when's the last time you went and had a good check? I was like, <laughs> been a while. Uh, but... <laughs> But the point is, I have good insurance. Like I'm pretty sure I, in fact, know in my insurance, the, the, the wellness, you know, the wellness for men, wellness for women, checkup, whatever. It's good. Yeah. Yeah. Fully, fully. Honestly, I know. Honestly, girl, you're getting on. You're 55 next week. I know. Can you imagine? (laughs) But but you do, you should take care of your health anytime. But once the 50 mark comes in, it just suggests a little bit more regular, Visits to the doctor just to say hello, not a bad idea. Yeah, yeah, you know, that's that's exactly it. In fact, here's here's another one that's great, and you're going to love this one. My my son actually had a bet with someone who's got the blindest parents, and so he says, hey, Dad, I know you're probably pretty much the blindest person I know. What's your what's your prescription for your glasses? So I took all offense. I said, come on, they're not that strong, and then I sent it to him, and I went, oh, yeah, that is kind of strong lenses, aren't they? <laughs> You've got me curious now. What, what's your prescription? So without my readers, 5.75 on each side. And with readers, add another 2.25. Uh, okay, so you're positive 2.25 minus 7.5. No, no, no I, I'm positive, I'm positive 5.75. And then add another positive 2.25 for the readers. So you're long-sighted? Yeah. Wow, that is strong, James. Yeah, it's. <laughs> well, I'm telling you, without the glasses on, then that's why actually I switched them because I've got these ones on that are bifocals. But then I'm always looking like this, right? Because I can't see the screen very well. So yeah, everything's a blur without glasses on. <laughs> yeah, but you're like you're like my mum. So my mum, nobody ever has seen her without glasses. Yeah, and I can't imagine you. It's like it's just part of your face. I've worn them since I was four years old. So people always say, "Oh, are you thinking of getting LASIK?" And it's like. No, I'll just keep getting different glasses. I'm fine. It works. Also, I, I had the laser and a few of my friends also had the laser around the same time. Yeah. And it's been great for me. I've been lucky, although I'm starting to get the signs now that it's wearing off a little. Not that it wears off. It's just that your yeah. eyes do constantly change. But two of my friends that had it done at the same time, they both wear glasses full time now. And so it didn't work. So 
yeah. there's pros and cons to it. Yeah. So. And well, you look great in glasses. They're dead trendy these days. That's it. They're, they're, they're great, right? And so now it's just a matter of finding those cool ones. These, these are actually what, some of my favorite. They were my son's. But uh, he, did, he he ended up not liking them, and they're made from skateboards. Skateboards? Yeah. I remember you telling me this years ago. So now I'm just looking for some new colored ones, some really crazy colored ones. But the problem is, with such a high prescription, those lenses get really expensive. So it's it's quite an investment if you've got a lot. And I imagine that they're quite thick as well. Yeah, they well, they got the new technology, right, where they kind of are managed to squish them, but I don't know. There'd always be that boy in school years ago who would have the really thick lenses and his eyes would be absolutely yeah, massive through the glasses. That was me when and I was nowadays, younger. And nowadays, yeah, you're really lucky you, don't, you and, don't have that issue. And there'd be tape over one side or wire on one side and they were usually <laughs> looking like this. You know, I've got all sorts of pictures of me with glasses on like that and it's, yeah. <laughs> Look like a moron. Yeah. <laughs> but at least, you know, it's cool that people are still wearing glasses because when children get them and they can't wear contact lenses at least they're inspired by how funky they can be and how cool and it's it's a cool industry really um yeah that, that we are encouraging people to wear glasses and that it's a fashion accessory it's not just about well and, you know, and in, the, in this part of the world it's so dusty if you've got contacts the chance of getting that dust in between the contact and your lens of your eye Forget it. I mean, forget that noise. I don't want to go anywhere near that situation. So this gives you that little bit and, and gives you a little bit of facial protection, right? So if someone does, like yesterday we were walking and some guy took down his mask, did the full out sneeze and then put the mask on. And I'm going, dude, it's like, what did you just do? <laughs> exactly. I'm thinking. You see my face is squirming. And, and this was, we were going up and es- going down an escalator. He was going up an escalator. I'm going, did I just go through that? Did I just go through the plume of phlegm droplets? At least I have glasses on. So I, it's not directly into my eye, but I, you know, it was like, oh, it was horrible. <laughs> I, just, I know we're finishing, but I have got to tell you just one quick story. Years ago, when we were in anatomy, I don't know whether I've told you this story before. There's a good chance, disclaimer, I may have told you this story before. But there was um, a friend of mine, and she laughed when we were in anatomy. We had all our cadavers out, and we, you know, looking at the intestines, the the stomach, etc. And as she laughed, a friend who was doing the dissection flicked by accident some of the cadaver fat into her mouth, and then she immediately vomited. And I... Even just hearing that story, I felt nauseous, let alone the fact that it happened to her. I just thought it was... I'm feeling and nauseous. Think, how do you ever get over something like that? <laughs> I'm feeling nauseous just thinking of that. It's like, oh, yeah, that's horrible. That, that yeah, is, so I thought I'd just finish on a really nice note. Yeah, that's really... This was a lot of fun. Jenna, this was, this was uh, you know, we, we covered so much territory. I think uh, we're ready to move on. That's for sure. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, <laughs> the junk is in the trunk. There we go, junk. That's that's the title of this show, junk in the trunk. Perfect. <laughs> On that note, it is absolutely time that we say goodbye, and we'll do this all again real soon. Doctor Jenna Burton joining us for Doc Talk. This is Podaholics. My name is James Pikeaway. You want to get a hold of us? Podaholics with a K at gmail www.podaholics.com and of course across all the socials find us on whatever stream that is we're also now on Deezer which is really cool I think that means we're on 11 different streaming platforms so find us listen to us and by all means leave us a comment and rate us we'll be back real soon you've been listening to Doc Talk with Dr. Jenna Burton right here on Podaholics Podaholics